Welcome to Domestic Chaos. I'm Burr Beard. My guest for this week's show is Paul Teeter, who lives with his wife Judy in Redlands, California. Paul grew up in this Paul and I grew up in the same hometown and went to high school together in Waynesboro, Pennsylvania. He starts talking about the schools he attended. My family moved, and I went to West Junior High, but Paul and I met at the high school. I asked him about his high school activities, and he included pond hockey. First three years at North Street Elementary School, and the next three years at Hooverville Elementary, and then three years at East Junior High School, and three years at the high school. We didn't have yearbooks, or we didn't have much in the way of class pictures. We did first, second, and third grade, but fourth, fifth, and sixth, you would get, oh, I know what it was. You'd get your individual picture, and then they'd put each individual picture on a page. You weren't all standing together. You just had, uh, you know, little 25 little squares. So, yeah, you and I didn't meet until uh, high school. Almost all related to music. I was in, you remember the tribe, probably not uh, politically correct to call it that any longer, the men's, men's league club and the uh, concert choir, uh, if you want to call it that. I was in the band, um, old the Wayne Ayers, remember the Wayne Ayers? I, I tried to uh, go out for sports, my dad being a doctor and seeing a lot of sports injuries. You know, one of the fun, more, most fun things was our senior year, getting an ice hockey game together. Yeah. you got to call that extracurricular. And uh, I still remember the name of your um, your big hockey stick. You called it Zeppelin. Really? My, my stick? You had the word Zeppelin on it. Yeah, you, you wanted to have a name, so I had to think, okay, no, i got to do that, but that's cool. I want something as cool as Zeppelin, but I don't know if I ever got around to it. I, wow. I actually went to, when I went to college, I... Um, Join the hockey team, but you know when you're just playing uh, hockey on a pond, that's a lot different. I was at uh, Wheaton College in the mid upper Midwest, and those guys they could skate before they could walk, you know, and they're um, on teams all through junior high and high school because there's not much more to do. A lot of Alaska uh, Canadians had come down too, so I'm competing with these guys that have had a lot of experience, and I'm out there with my glasses and my helmet on and getting knocked up against the wall and glasses <laughs> falling off and I'm looking out the ear hole of my helmet thinking maybe men's glee club yeah that's it men's glee club <laughs> <laughs> well you know um I got gear and played in a couple what they called industrial leagues oh y- yeah because companies would uh buy the jerseys and then you had okay. to pay ice time, like at a local rink. I did right. that um, when I was in Brethren Volunteer Service in D.C. And okay. I drove out with a legislative assistant from a rep from Massachusetts. I, re- I can't remember who it was, but this guy was nice. He would come and pick me up, and we'd go out around, I think it was Suitland, Maryland, and play. And I would just knock guys over and sometimes uh unintentionally you know because i was slipping or sliding and right, you right. know and they said oh good check man and 
guy would get up and and scowl at me and <laughs> we keep going so that was fun to, that. to put that that uh, pond experience yeah and when we were up uh at the um pond near the ranger station there uh in uh old forge old forge yeah, yeah. on old forge road and didn't uh kim rankin i guess bob rankin didn't he play with us and and brian cordell yeah, it seems like, and uh, we lost him, but I'm thinking maybe Lonnie Barnhart did too. We'd put uh, shoes uh, for goals on either side of that good pond because it was surrounded by pine trees, I remember, so it was smooth right, ice right. and it would freeze faster. That was great, man. Yeah. So then... Yeah, that was a lot of fun. One, one day, I had my camera, and I don't know if I was leaving, but... I saw you coming out of that hallway to the band and the music area, and mm-hmm. I kind of admired the long coat and scarf you were wearing. Mm-hmm. And I said, do you want to have some fun here? And, and uh, do you remember that picture, series of pictures that we oh, took? absolutely. I still remember taking it. But, I, <laughs> yeah, I've looked in the yearbook and seen it uh, several times. You got me kind of interested in photography, too, Burr, uh, with that, because you showed me how to use the camera. We went up to we went up to Harrisburg one e- uh, evening. We went out to dinner at uh, some greasy spoon diner or something like that, and we were taking photos. And I have a couple of photos in that yearbook, too. You and Brian were more the uh, on, on the yearbook committee, but uh, you kind yeah. of deputied me out, and I took some of the pictures that are in that, too. Yeah, which, I do remember that. I just looked like I was ones? walking into the ground. Uh, one with Julie Miller. We just made sure the the uh, coat was straight, and then I would crouch down with my head looking erect until I was the last pic- picture just a coat and a scarf on the ground. I yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, you know, uh, fully uh, up straight, and then I just crouched down and and. Uh, uh, Got so that uh, you know, bent way at the knee. Paul was retired from a career in teaching, and a highlight was teaching in Kenya. Churches like the one I grew up in, the Church of the Brethren, started the Heifer Project some 75 years ago, but many churches around us missioned places in Africa. Paul's parents were involved in this too. So in 95, they thought, well, let's see if uh, they couldn't get anybody fresh out of uh, school with a teaching credential without any better thing to do with it. So they wrote, wrote me a letter and said, would you be okay coming over for the year that the regular teacher's back home? And so we went over there for the year. When I came back, I was still teaching uh, special ed for a while, one more year, and then size ratio from kindergarten through third grade in California, and they needed a lot more uh, primary teachers, you know, uh, kindergarten through third. My favorite grade had always been third grade, so I took a third grade class for another 16 years. Uh, the interesting thing, though, uh, talking about going to Kenya, it, it seemed like a shot in the dark. It wasn't a very wise decision, you know, to leave your job here. I wasn't paid. I didn't have medical insurance or anything. They gave me a job when I came back, so it was a leave of absence, not a sabbatical. 
So um, we really felt that uh, God was calling us to do this and went over there and found out that I only had seven kids in the class, three of which were had undiagnosed learning disabilities, two of which a seven- and eight-year-old really hadn't learned to read yet. And so, um, it was, you know, I could see what the mission was, right? One of the kids, a second grader, had attention deficit so bad, deficit so bad that his uh, dad thought he was willfully disobedient. He'd say, now go to your bedroom and uh, brush your teeth and uh, put your pajamas on and call me when you're done or something like that. He'd go back to the bedroom and couldn't remember even the first thing to do. And he, his dad was thought he was willfully disobedient and was very harsh with his punishment. And at school, he couldn't sit there and get much of anything done, so I'd send work home with him to see if Mom had any more success with it. And I approached them about uh, getting uh, this boy on medication. Uh, Dad, a doctor, was not for it. Mom, I think she had nurses trained, but she was all for it. uh, I just kept the records of of, uh, what the observable behavior was. And we had a guy come over from Washington State who was a doctor, and he, he specialized in kids with learning disabilities and attention deficit and so forth. And he finally convinced this other doctor to, to go for uh, a round of medication. And the, the change in this little boy was phenomenal. Um, in fact, you know, a lot of times parents will give their kids drug holidays uh, when they're on vacation. They didn't do that because he was such so more calm and, and, and uh, um, purposeful, and uh, the harmony in the family was uh, improved to such a degree that they decided to keep him on the medication even during breaks. So um, that was 96, 97. In 2000, wow. I had a chance to go back uh, for... Uh, my parents had provided seed money for a nursing school addition, and they had built it and were dedicating it, and they wanted mom and dad there. And I thought, mom and dad are getting a little old for this, and I'm going to go along with them to help them out. Whatever, but anyway, I went back to the same compound that I had taught. When you're visiting, you go from uh, missionary's house to missionary's house to eat meals uh, because you know visit. You don't have a store nearby or any supplies or anything. So we went to this doctor's house who had the boy who uh, made a turnaround in his second year of schooling, and uh, so the doctor was introducing all the other visitors to each other, going around the room, and he got to me and he said, "And this is Paul Teeter." And then he choked up, and he goes, he saved our family. And it almost brought me to tears because I realized that, you know, God had uh, brought us there for a certain reason. We didn't know what it was uh, at the time, but it it became fairly clear, especially in retrospect. Uh, So there's that. And then when he came back and taught third grade for uh, all but one year, I had a combination two, three and retired at 59 and a half. That's a little bit earlier than planned. I asked Paul how his religious convictions influenced his political beliefs to end the interview segment, and he concluded with his support and interest in California Governor Gavin Newsom. I would say Christian first. Uh, I've voted Democratic and, and agree with most of the issues. I don't think either party gets it right. Uh, but I think that the Democrats are the party of compassion, and that's what I'm about. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, when you when you consider that uh, 
one of our biggest jobs on Earth is to take care of the planet. It's scriptural. So that leads me to environmental causes. Uh, it's very clear how we should treat aliens, those that are visiting in the country. Very clear, very clear in the Bible on what to do. And uh, it seems to me the Democrats are a lot more generous and passionate and understanding in that regard. The scripture is very clear on making decisions based solely on the economic impact. I don't think the Democrats do it just that way. I think the Republicans do. The bottom line should never be the dollar. It should be principle. And I think that uh, Democrats are more highly principled in that area, not as uh, uh, apt to make decisions that put money in their pocket. Well, my parents were moderate Republicans, and I was a Democrat when um, the voting age was lowered to 18 and uh, voted in my first election. But I say that, that they're rolling over in their grave. I mean, I remember in, I guess it was maybe eighth or ninth grade at West, my dad was talking about, um, oh, geez, what was the guy running for president who, who was real right wing? I can't, Goldwater? I, Goldwater, Barry Goldwater, yeah. And he yeah. couldn't stand him. That that uh-huh. was like, so it's like, what would they think? And what do you think about where the Republicans have gone to now? Yeah, well, I, I uh, out of the zone of my respect, I'll have to say, um, I just think that, um, as I said, first of all, I guess the, the most egregious thing is that everything has to be political. All social issues, all economic issues, they have to turn it political for some reason, and it shouldn't be that but turning it political means more divisiveness in our country. And I do think that it's uh, the Republicans that are mostly at fault there. Um, they find a way to argue anything. They'll stand against anything that uh, Obama or Biden has put out. Uh, you know, we, we, we can't vote across the aisle anymore. No one wants to cooperate with the other party. Uh, and I blame the Republicans for that, uh, just divisive argumentative, angry. That's what's happened to the Republican Party. Uh, They don't seem to uh, work for the common good, maybe the corporate good, but not the common good. Corporate meaning uh, industry and oils and, you know, oil and that kind of thing. Right. Um, So I think that it's a shame that they seem to um, champion moral issues that I am in uh, favor of. Like, uh, to be honest with you, I'm not uh, really much in favor of abortion or using federal money to pay for it. Uh, so that's kind of a Republican plank in their platform. And I kind of wish that that was the Democratic plank because, you know, it shows uh, compassion for the unborn kind of thing. And that seems like what the Democrats would espouse. But I guess that's what I mean when I say uh, neither party gets it 100% right. I did, uh, when it came time to vote, I, like you, wanted to be involved in the uh, first election uh, possible. I was going to Wheaton at the time, and uh, George McGovern was running in 72. Right, against uh, Nixon, of course. 
And McGovern actually came from a preacher's family. His father was a preacher. And he came to Wheaton to, gave a, to give an address while he was campaigning. Uh, and I voted for him. I didn't like Nixon anyway back then because I thought he was a crook um, in 72. And he was. <laughs> but anyway, but uh, you know, my ideals do line up more squarely with uh, Democrats. And I don't know what the Republicans have done to the party. I mean, when you see people like Marjorie Taylor Greene believing in these conspiracy theories that just would be laughed out of any Senate or House body uh, 20 years ago, and now she's getting steam behind her, and people are following her on this nonsense. It just seems so um, so illogical, so nonsensical, some of the things that the Republicans are pushing, including denying the, the outcome of the vote. You know the uh, the governor Gavin Newsom. Uh, they tried the Republicans tried to recall him, and they didn't even come close. And he's quite popular here. He's, uh, of course, we're a much more blue state than most of them. He um, <clears throat> has a chance, perhaps, of even announcing for a 2024 run for the Democratic Party. Has a fairly decent uh, chance of. Uh, doing well in that I'm not sure how, how far he could take that but uh, I think he's uh, done a lot to help the state out he's uh, he had to stand up to uh, president number 45 in terms of uh, helping California protect their air quality and we had set different standards for auto emissions in California than the other states they were more rigid more strict and uh, <clears throat> Trump tried to get those overturned in California, saying that you know it wasn't fair or something like that. And uh, he was able to hang on and, and keep the uh, the law, environmental laws in place and that kind of thing. He actually had to sue the federal government. So he's, he was able to stand up to some of the crazy things the, the Republicans were trying to do here. I, I'm sure you know that uh, one of Trump's biggest enemies was the entire state of California. Um, he didn't never had anything good to say about it. Didn't even want to come visit. But you know that's obvious because he, you know, he has more critics probably in California than anywhere else. Thanks to Paul Teeter, man, you just got me started. Well, Republicans feed conspiracies to the orange head wannabes just to get them riled up by this week's end, pushing hatred, civil war, and AR-15 attacks. Salon.com reports the news conspiracy theory boils down to this. President Joe Biden is using the IRS as cover to build up a secret police force of 87,000 armed jackboot thugs who are coming to kick down MAGA doors to take guns, etc. We've all heard it thousands of times before from the Infowars and the far-right social media set which is predicted for decades that a crystal knocked for NASCAR fans is coming any day now. This time, however, the conspiracy theory is pumped out not just by the fever swamps, but by GOP leadership and Fox News. Finally, Pennsylvania Republican gubernatorial nominee Doug Mastriano has promoted and campaigned with Julie Green, a prophet, so-called, who has claimed that God will execute political figures for their planned pandemic shortages, inflation mandates, and for stealing an election. 
the Mastro ally, a fringe religious commentator, who also alleged a variety of conspiracy theories, including that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, quote, loves to drink little children's blood. The government is conducting human sacrifices to stay in power, and President Joe Biden is secretly dead, and an actor is playing him. <laughs> well, so Mastriano is on the road campaigning with... Uh, Julie Green, Media Matters, reports that Mastriano's connection to Green is yet another chapter in his history of promoting extremist media. He tweeted QAnon content on Twitter more than 50 times. He shared anti-Muslim content on Facebook. He posted an image claiming Roe v. Wade was so much worse than the Holocaust, and he paid for consulting with Gab, the white nationalist social media platform, that's headed by a virulent anti-Semite and filled with violent anti-Semitic threats. And that's domestic chaos for this week. The show produced by Burr and Julie Beard. Thanks for listening and tune in next week. Same time, same station.